is New Albion calling. New Albion calling. Good evening. I'm Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb, and you're listening to the ARC Light program. Shortly, we'll be bringing you Slumbertime stories. But first, we have another of the incredible recordings of old Albion folk songs collated by Dame Hildebrand Dilemma Spaniels. We played the first of these last week, and at least one person contacted us to say it had reduced them to tears. Certainly, the effect of these songs is to stir parts of the psyche that are not touched by ordinary run-of-the-mill recordings. This week we have another haunting tune, which has never been recorded before, and we hope it has a similar effect on those of you listening. ARC is very proud to present A Folk Song of Old Albion, introduced by Dame Dilemma Spaniels herself. say about that wonderful recording that has not been said before. Well, nothing really, I suppose. So, well, I'll simply leave its sonorous tones ringing in your ears and straight out across the viaduct of Moving On. Next on the light programme, we have Slumber Time Stories. And this week, it's the concluding part of our rather unseasonal Christmas special. Hopefully we'll get back on a more usual schedule next week. But for now, here it is. Read by yours truly, Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb. Part two of A Christmas Carry-On by Darren Callan. True to form, Scrooge had certainly not held back on the seasonal cheer. 
He had demolished the best part of a flagon of mulled wine, lovingly prepared by Mrs. Bestial, the housekeeper, and washed it down with a plateful of savoury biscuits and blue cheese. Or was that the other way round? Needless to say, this cheery overindulgence had had the usual effect of such things, and Scrooge was now snoring rumbustiously in his most comfortable armchair near a now gently glowing fireplace. With a rude start, Scrooge was suddenly woken by a sharp bang and flash in the grate. It later turned out to have been a firecracker, but at that time Scrooge was not to know. He sat bolt upright in his chair and gazed with gummed up eyes at an unholy apparition that had appeared before him as if by magic or witchcraft. Stood before him was an intimidating beast of a figure, clad in red robes, a dirty beard, was it coal dust? Shiny slatted goggles covered his eyes, and his hands were encased in mighty gloves with iron fingers, and his legs in knee-high boots with glistening buckles and straps. Ho, ho, and indeed ho, intoned the apparition, for want of something more insightful. Do not harm me, O oh spirit, squeaked Scrooge, who was actually mightily afeared, and a smidge worried he might have a little accident, the telling of which would not be pleasant. Mercifully, this did not happen. After a time, which was probably only a few seconds, but seemed longer, in which the ghastly figure continued to stand menacingly, but did little else besides, Scrooge felt compelled to ask, Is there anything I can do for you? Mulled wine, perhaps? Oh, blow this for a game of soldiers, muttered the figure, and proceeded to produce a blunderbuss-type pistol that he aimed directly at Scrooge's head. Mose, isn't that my... Scrooge was unable to complete his question, as the gun discharged violently, and the rubber projectile knocked Scrooge right back to a state of unconsciousness, much like where he had been only a few moments earlier. When he came to, with the aid of some smelling salts under his ample nose, Scrooge was mystified to find that he was outside and propped up against a rough brick wall next to a window. It was still dark in the street, but it seemed somehow earlier in the evening than before, which was quite unsettling. Or perhaps it was the following day. After all, he had no idea how long he'd been out for. He recalled then that there had been a horrible figure, and as he glanced around, he was somewhat unsurprised to find that it was still there, helping to hold him up against the wall. The only slight improvement on his previous situation was that the ghoul seemed to have finally got his story straight. I am the ghost of Christmas past! He bellowed at Scrooge. If you say so, spirit, replied Scrooge, still shaking a little, realising there was something a little familiar about the voice, but in his dazed state he could not yet place it. I am here to teach you the real meaning of Christmas, continued the apparition, in an unnecessarily loud tone. And it isn't all that good, it added, suddenly sounding not quite so sure, but still very loud. Oh, fair enough, muttered Scrooge. 
But perhaps you'd keep it down a bit. I've got a humdigger of a headache coming on. Silence! screeched the ghoul, regaining a little of its evil composure. Look into the window and gaze upon the miserable face of Christmas past. As much in the hope that it would shut him up for a bit, Scrooge did as he was bidden. It took a little while for his bleary eyes to gain something approaching focus, but as they did, Scrooge began to make out the scene within the building that was just about lit by flickering candles. It turned out to be a schoolroom of some sort. The beaten up old desks were all empty, bar one, where a lonely figure sat working away with small pieces of metal and a miniature toolkit. Oh, tell me, oh, fateful spirit, began Scrooge reverently, mostly for fear of another round of shouting. Who is this poor wretch who sits all alone? Are you kidding me? muttered the ghost, and then added, Put your glasses on, you old duffer. Mildly put out by the insult, but realising that it might actually help, Scrooge reached into his dressing gown pocket and brought out his eyepieces. Suitably attired, he looked again, and this time the recognition was instantaneous and sent a murmur through his heart. The figure at the desk, working animatedly at his construction set, was none other than the younger Sebastian Crumplefold Rouge. A huge smile broke out all over Scrooge's face at the realization, and he began to gibber excitedly. Oh, it's me, it's me. He turned to the apparition and patted him heartily on the shoulder. Oh, spirit, I have no idea how you've done it, but that's me, that's me. He pointed excitedly. How wonderful. How wonderful, bellowed the ghost, with more than a hint of annoyance in his voice. What's so blooming wonderful about being on your own at Christmas? Is it still Christmas? inquired Scrooge. Oh, the joy! I love this time more than any other. There were always toys to take apart and reassemble, puzzles to ponder, word games of my invention to torment my tutors. What? The spirit seemed more than a little put out now. But, but I assumed your Christmases must have been awful, abandoned by your parents and all that. No, spirit. Whoever does your research needs to be given the royal order of the boot, teased Scrooge. But a little melancholy entered his voice. My parents never abandoned me, but they were elderly and had to send me away to school. Despite this, I was spoiled rotten, never wanted for anything, especially at Christmas. Oh, for heaven's sake, intoned the ghoul, sounding really rather put out. Well, in that case, I have another announcement to make. I am now the ghost of Christmas yet to come. And with that, he wearily raised the pistol again. Knowing what was coming, Scrooge just sighed. With another waft of the smelling salts, Scrooge was revived once more, but this time the circumstances were vastly different. He was in what seemed to be a small, dark cave, 
Very small, in fact. So small that he and the spirit apparition thingy were shoved right up next to each other, practically cheek by jowl. Not especially dignified for an elemental force capable of transporting mortal man through time and space. But Scrooge thought better of mentioning it. In any case, the ghouls seemed to not really be in the mood for small talk. Right, listen up, it began. I am the ghost of Christmas yet to come. You've told me that, interjected Scrooge unhelpfully. Shut it, snapped the ghost, clearly beginning to lose its ethereal rag. For want of a quiet life, Scrooge obeyed. Since you had such a flipping marvellous childhood, I've brought you into the future to show you your mortal remains. This didn't sound too good, and Scrooge felt the chill of fear returning. You are dead now, and I'm going to show you your grave, continued the spirit prosaically, and then added, somewhat superfluously, it seemed to Scrooge, Now, the general gist of this is you need to realise that time is of the essence, and we, I mean you, and your accomplices, need to chivvy it up a bit in the general area of working on the time machine project type thingy. In a nutshell, you need to forget the whole let's take Christmas Day off malarkey and try and press on. Comprende? Well, that's all terribly specific, spluttered Scrooge. I, I thought this was more of a general let me teach you something deep and meaningful about life and Christmas and your place in it kind of haunting. No, screamed the spirit hysterically. It's not that. It's what I just said. Oh, for crying out loud, let's just get on with it. And with that, it opened the door of the capsule and unceremoniously shoved Scrooge out. Still bleary from his second spell of unconsciousness, Scrooge staggered out into what had almost certainly once been a graveyard, but now looked an awful lot more like a battlefield. All around him, across the churned-up ground, were soldiers and other uniformed militia. Some dead, some wounded, and a few still actively engaged in full-on warfare. A huge explosion suddenly tore a colossal chunk of dank earth from the ground and along with a half or dozen or so miscellaneous body parts splattered it all over Scrooge and the now emerging dishevelled Santa Claus figure behind him. Scrooge was about to sink to his knees when a sprightly figure in green combat smock, replete with several equipment belts, a helmet festooned with gadgets and toting a large handgun of bizarre design, grabbed them both and hauled them down behind a damaged but still largely intact stone wall. Flashes of sinister light in satanic hues of red and yellow arced over their heads and screams could be heard echoing from the building opposite that was already encased in snarling licks of flame. Oh dear all that is holy, breathed Scrooge, shocked to his core. Remind me what the point of this is again? This last he aimed at his spirit companion, whom he turned to face, only to find that in the force of the explosion, the spirit's hood had been blown back and his goggles ripped roughly from his head. The net result of which meant that Scrooge could just about make out the features of his erstwhile assistant on his blood and grime smeared face. To literally cap it all, 
the shock of white hair was unmistakable. Molly? Was all that Scrooge could force from his dry mouth before another figure jumped over the wall and practically landed on them. This one wearing a large black leather overcoat, bristling with weapons. A wide brimmed hat jammed down on his head. Who the chuffin' hell are these two? He snapped gruffly at the first figure, who turned out to be a woman with fiery blue eyes, wisps of short blonde hair, and a rather fine chin, prominent under her helmet and eyepieces. No idea, shrugged the woman, but they're going to need a gun if they're going to be of any use to us. Not sure there'd be much use to us even then, snarled the man. Landship is coming up to the crossroads. This should be worth seeing. Time to give them a taste of their own sick alien medicine. With that, he indicated the general direction of the event with a wave of a black gauntlet, and then set about reloading one of his two large silver pistols. The other three stared in the rough area he'd pointed to, and sure enough, a massive metal box with four giant caterpillar tracks, one in each corner, began to clank and belch its way around the corner alongside the graveyard. The so-called landship was covered in turrets with cannons and machine guns. Mighty diesel engines at the rear were doing a good job of creating an impromptu smoke screen as they coughed up great plumes of dense black smoke. Come on, boys. Give them something to chew on, snarled the woman under her breath as she clenched her fist. Is that one on our side? inquired Marley, somewhat pathetically. Before anyone could answer, the gnarled man pointed to the left and growled, Tripod. They all looked with horror as a monstrous three-legged machine, nearly twice the size of the nearest building, moved with almost impossible litheness and positioned itself at the far end of the road, opposite the trundling, clanking tank. Let them have it, boys, yelled the woman, and sure enough, the metal fort let fly with every weapon it had. Cannons boomed, rockets launched, and machine guns chattered away, to absolutely no effect whatsoever. Every shot went wide, or simply pinged off the sleek saucer atop the three spindly legs. No, oh dear, muttered Scrooge, and the others could do little more than agree silently. Then, with an eerie whine, the tripod began its response. A stem protruding from its saucer began to glow a ghastly green, and then yellow, and finally bright white, and a single line of light shone out and flicked across the landship in a straight line from head to tail. Ha! Is that all they've got? declared Marley, with a rather premature sense of triumphalism, as at first nothing appeared to happen. But then, with a gut-churning screech, the two sides of the massive iron craft, which had been rather neatly sliced down the middle, began to fall away from each other. With two mighty crashes, the halves of the vehicle thudded to earth 
sending dust and smoke and bits of crew in every direction. As the great choking cloud engulfed them, Scrooge chose his moment to grab Marley and haul him desperately towards the time machine. More laser lights flickered around them, and he heard the two soldiers behind them begin to loose off rounds. Behind you, Fitch, was the last words he heard as he bundled Marley into the capsule, and knowing now that they were in his very own invention, threw the switch that he himself had labelled home, with the intention that would always take travellers back to the present. He offered up a silent prayer that this future version of the machine worked as he'd always intended it. I don't feel so good, whispered Marley. But Scrooge barely heard him as the machine did its inhuman, time-bending work around them. Back in the laboratory, Marley the more inebriated had finished his splendid bottle of port and so was very glad when he heard the static sparking that heralded the return of the time machine. He was now somewhat the worse for drink and keen to return post-haste to his own time and continue celebrating. His revered position as the founder of time travel now, presumably, assured. His spirit soared euphorically when he saw the wretched and bedraggled pair stumble from the still-steaming glass capsule. Scrooge, in particular, looked shocked and defeated, and no doubt was inclined to abandon his sense of seasonal cheer and return to work immediately. Marley, the more innocent disposition, was harder to discern as he was bundled swiftly from the room by Scrooge, calling loudly for Mrs. Bestial to attend. The coast being pretty much clear, Marley, the more decrepit, slipped out of the non-functioning time machine and into his own device. He closed the door firmly and then popped open a hidden panel beneath Scrooge's neatly etched home switch, inside which was another switch, labelled somewhat less neatly, Back to the Future. Marley, the most ancient, chuckled to himself and threw the switch. With this, the time machine vanished somewhat less melodramatically than it had arrived. Nice and neat. Evidence removed. Job done. Or so he thought. Or perhaps he never did, as you shall see. Back in the parlour, Scrooge had propped his fast-fading assistant up in the chair that he had earlier been warming with his own sleeping bulk. He peeled back the tattered remains of the St. Nicholas outfit and discovered that Marley had been wounded rather badly by a stray shot in the melee that they had barely escaped. Oh, my dear Marley, what has this all been about? Scrooge asked in sympathetic tones as he removed the welding gauntlets he now recognised only too well and held Marley's hand in his own. All the colour had drained from Marley's face, but he still had a little strength left to lift his head up to his old master's gaze. His mouth moved dryly. Oh, you really don't want to know, he began. But promise two small things to a dying man. 
Scrooge realized the words were becoming a struggle, so he leant closer and held Marley's hand a little firmer. Speak, my friend. I'm listening. Forget about the time machine. It will bring no good to the world. Think of ways to fight the Martians that are surely returning. Prepare mankind so that we can preserve our way of life. And, and, and even more than that, give me your word that you will always hold Christmas dear. We have to have something to make all the fighting worthwhile. And with that, and absolutely no regard as to how it affects the timeline of this whole tale I've just relayed to you, Marley slipped away into the world beyond. Scrooge agreed wholeheartedly with his sadly departed colleague, whose death that occurred to him was going to be rather hard to explain to the authorities. However, there was no time to dwell on that, as he really had to start work on something to change the world, which currently seemed doomed to being wiped out, perhaps only a score of years or so from today. It occurred to Scrooge at that moment that with all that time travelling, he really had no idea what day it was. No clue could be discerned from the fire that had long since ebbed to silvery grey ashes. Running to the window, he opened it and put out his head. Oh, what's today? cried Scrooge, calling downward to a boy in Sunday best clothes. Hey, returned the boy with all his might of wonder. What's today, cloth ears? said Scrooge, growing a little impatient. Today, replied the boy. Why, Christmas Day. It's Christmas Day, said Scrooge to himself. I haven't missed it. The whole thing happened in a single night. Not wanting to waste a moment, he turned immediately and headed to his laboratory, diverting only to collect a bottle of claret and some fresh cheese from the pantry, to start dismantling his time machine and begin creating fearsome weapons of war. Sod you, muttered the boy and shuffled off disconsolately. And so, our tale is ended, in the mind-mangling fashion that only a time-travelling story can elicit. And the moral of this story, dear reader, should any such thing be required, is this. Do not believe everything you hear in stories. Merry Christmas, and God bless us all, everyone. Well, that's all very confusing. I'm not sure I follow these time-travel tales. How can any of that actually have happened, Mabel? Well, it's all a bit far-fetched, don't you think? Oh well. Next week, we have a ripping adventure yarn set under the sea. So that should certainly be something to look forward to. For now, this is Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb signing off. Good night, New Orleans. I wish you dreams of a bright What's this you've written here, Mabel? You actually want me to read this even though it's the middle of October? Oh, for heaven's sake. I really don't know why I put up with this. 
I'm supposed to be a professional, you know. Merry Christmas, everyone. Happy New Year. All stories, voices and characters created by copyright to Darren Cowley. The part of Hildebrand Dilemma Spangles was played by Emma King. All music by Charlotte Savigar. Tales of New Albion is available to buy from Amazon online stores or via Bandcamp, where the album is also available. For more information, go to www.talesofnewalbion.com or search for Tales of New Albion on Facebook. Tales of New Albion is a Monkey Teaspoon production, Albion Radiophonic Corporation. <laughs>